You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, happy Friday, everybody. I'm here. Aaron is here. This show's presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for Windows, call 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them that we told you to call. Uh, I'm going to get to the Sweet 16 games. There was an epic game. The Purdue-Tennessee game uh, was phenomenal. Uh, the smell test was 2-1 and one last night. It's funny, Aaron. You weren't here yesterday. I gave out Purdue. I gave out Gonzaga. And I gave out Virginia. But I said about the Virginia game, I don't like Virginia personally. I think Oregon can win this game. I think they can keep it tight. Um, but it was a major anti-public play. The public was on Oregon uh, last yeah. night. So I laid the points with uh, Virginia. Um, another smell test coming up um, here uh, a little bit later. Uh, I did, um, I guess now it is 11-5 and five, uh, for since last Friday. If you count that first day, I'm 12-9. and 12-9 and nine overall. Not bad uh, in the tournament, 12-9. and nine. Who did you have yesterday? Did you bet yesterday? Uh, I had Tennessee. You did? Yeah. Uh, Brutal. I know. Brutal. I'm, I'm so happy. You know I'm, I'm a big, as they call him, Coach Paint fan, uh, Matt Painter fan, and I'm so glad that he's in the Elite Eight. Um, first time he's gotten past the Sweet 16, and that's going to be a hell of a game Saturday Saturday night, Purdue, Virginia. The line's four and a half. Both of Saturday's games are going to be really yeah. good. Uh, Texas Tech, man. We'll, we'll, we'll get to the Sweet 16, I promise. Um, Nat's opening day as well. Mark Zuckerman's going to join us. Uh, Aaron was there also uh, yesterday at Nat's Park for their 2 nothing loss uh, to the Mets. Uh, Scherzer was great. DeGrom was great. Um, the pitching was great. Not a lot of offense and not enough offense from the Nets uh, in their opener. The Caps completed the sweep of Carolina this week. They clinched another playoff season that's 11 of the last 12 years. Quite a run. You know, it's a good chance that they're going to face the Hurricanes now, I believe, in the first round of the playoffs. I don't know if it's a good chance, but they're definitely one of the teams that are possible. I mean, the Islanders and Pens still with a chance to win the division. The Caps have a three-point lead over the Islanders right now, five over Pittsburgh with four games left. Um, And the Caps still have another game with Tampa, I know. Um, But, you know, we're a week and a half away from the NHL postseason and the Caps' quest to defend their cup, uh, which will be a lot of fun. Uh, I wanted to start the show with this. I got a text message and a tweet uh, yesterday that I wanted to share about yesterday's show. Um, it's it's just interesting to me. It might not be that interesting to you, but who cares? Because I, I, I think, actually, it should be interesting to you. Because it's reflective of either the phenomena that is people hear what they want to hear, or yesterday's show, I just didn't make any of my positions very clear. Which I will admit, sometimes I, it's not that I'm waffling, although sometimes I waffle, but sometimes I just consider too much both sides of an issue, and I get too deep into analyzing it. Um, but I, I told Aaron yesterday, because he wasn't here, that I actually thought yesterday's show was a really good show. If you didn't listen to it, I was really into some of the Skins discussion yesterday, in particular, um, some of the conversation about... The, the the reports that had come out the day before about Jay Gruden and, and his terrible frustration, something that Chris Russell had, it's just we are in that season of speculation and rumor and lots of different things flying flying around this organization per usual. Scott was really good on the show yesterday, too, um, talking about 
uh, Tom Izzo in particular. Go listen to the show if you didn't listen to it. Uh, you've got all weekend to do it. Uh, but anyway, um, the tweet I got was from a major league Twitter a-hole. I mean, most of you would have blocked this guy by now. I just don't know how to block anybody. I'm sure it's not that hard. I don't really care enough to figure it out. Tommy used to say to me all the time, I block people all the time. Why don't you? I don't, I've never blocked one person. Somebody told me you can mute people. I've never muted one person. I don't really care to take the time because it doesn't really, sometimes you get stuff that, that is borderline threatening. I, I'm not going to lie to you, but I don't know. It's Twitter. It's like this cesspool for negativity. And, you know, this guy is a total tool. I mean, a first-rate tool. And stupid, too. Um, Anyway, I'm not going to give out his Twitter handle. He's only got like five followers. Um, I'll I'll refer to him as Lenny. And Lenny tweeted, as he often does to me, um, with very hard to decipher English and very poor verb conjugation, (laughs) not his strength, Um, but I'll read it as he wrote it. He wrote, You is so hater. The Skins have one of their best years and you so negative. Kirk ain't here anymore. Get over your bitch. Case made Kirk bitch in Minnesota. That was the tweet. Um, A lot of them, sometimes I do smile um, and I laugh at them. But just so you know, if you didn't listen to yesterday's show, there was not one mention of Cousins. And not one mention, I don't think, of Case Keenum. But I did mention him potentially in the context of discussing the Skins quarterback situation. But nothing ridiculously negative at all. So anyway, you've got that one tweet from Lenny. And then one of the reasons I wanted to read the text as well is it's just, it's interesting because this is sometimes how it goes after a show. I get a text from a guy that I know. He listens to the podcast every day and he texts me. He's not a close friend. Um, I don't even know him that well and I don't even know how he got my cell phone, but he texts me and he's very nice. And he texted me yesterday. He said, you are being too soft on this team. It's what Tom always says. If it looks bad from the outside, the reality is even worse. You've got to be tougher on this group. And so yesterday was, I'm not saying that I don't get that a lot. Sometimes I, in the same, after the same show, I'll get, you're such a homer and you're such a hater. I will get that, you know, occasionally. And I do know that, you know, it's always in the, you know, ears of the beholder, um, so to speak. And people hear what they want to hear. But I do also think that yesterday I, I didn't really have definitive opinions on a few things. I, I was essentially going through the state of the franchise right now from a high level and saying, you know, the roster's not that great. Um, you know, front office is in a bit of disarray. The, there's a detached, you know, feeling of personnel to coaching. And, you know, just high level, let's not forget while we get all these daily reports about what's going on with Jay and frustration, bottom line is it's not a very good team on paper. I mean, it's the third best team at best in the division. It's the 11th or 12th best team, best case, in the NFC. This is a team right now that is predicted to be a double-digit loss team. The over/under in Vegas is six, six and a half. So if it, you know, if it's six and a half, they could be a seven and nine team. Um, anyway, I, I, I want to be clear on this so that there's no mistaking it for some of those um, who aren't think that think I'm not being clear enough. Um, and some of you are new 
to the podcast or whatever, and, and you don't know um, my history as a fan of the team, as a born and raised Washingtonian, as a longtime season ticket holder, as as a you know a true you know diehard over the years. Um, I'm I'm a massive fan of the team, even still. I am. I want them to be good, and for the purposes of this podcast, it will be better for me if the Redskins won. I believe that. You know, we talked a few weeks ago, remember, Aaron, about how, you know, some of the radio shows in town, podcasts, including mine, aren't hurt that much when the skins aren't winning. And and there's truth to that, that, that some of you actually, many of you, prefer the conversation about the team as much or even more than watching the team anymore. And I get that. Um, I've experienced that over the years with some of you, but it's still better overall for anybody in D.C. that has a Redskins-oriented show, you know, it's better if they win. It, much better if they win. But be, beyond that, I'm, I'm a fan, and then from a business standpoint, I want them to win. So I want to be really clear on that. Um, it's my preference. Now, most of you who have listened over the years know that while I have no qualms ripping them when they do stupid things, I'm, you know, I, I'm also going to root for them on Sundays, Mondays, Thursdays, whenever they play. Um, and I want them to win and look less stupid doing it. Um, I don't know that that can happen, but I, I am rooting for that. But I, I've not had any issue ripping them. And so while I'm a fan of the team and I want them to do well, you know, the other part of this is I'm not a fan of the people running the team. Not at all. I don't think the owner is a good owner. And I think the people he has working for him are subpar at best, incompetent at worst. It's not, this isn't revealing in any way to most of you. It's my opinion that because of the owner and the people he has hired to run the team, the chances that the team that I root for more than any other, the chances that they will be successful are just not very good. You know, I, I'm I'm not a delusional fan. I want it to happen. Every September when the season starts, I do have optimism Less so in recent years, but I'm always optimistic that, you know, if they stay healthy, if they don't have a lot of injuries, if the ball bounces their way, if the schedule ends up being not as difficult as it looks at the beginning of the year, hey, they could go 10-6, and win the division, and have a chance. But I will be clear on, yes, I'm a fan, but also I I don't think that they have much of a chance. I don't. The chances that the Redskins ever have sustained success. And how would I define that? Um, A run of, let's just say a decade or so of being a contender. You know, 10 years, five to six playoff seasons, two NFC championship games, one Super Bowl trip. They don't even have to to win it. Actually, you know what? I'll make it easier. A five-year run. A five-year run of three playoff seasons. Uh, three playoff wins, three playoff games that they actually win over five years. Not even a guaranteed NFC title game or Super Bowl trip. Three playoff seasons in five years. And by the way, the two that they don't make it, they're competitive. Like, you know, eight and eight one year, uh, nine and seven or 10 and six the other year, but don't make the playoffs. You know, I don't even know if you would call that a successful run, but compared to what they've had, it would be. Um, but I don't see the chances of that happening as being very good. It would take stumbling into a transcendent quarterback, probably. 
I think that's the only way. Yeah. There's the chance that they could get super lucky. They could get a great quarterback. They could stumble into Patrick Mahomes, you know, or somebody the next great quarterback. But more likely than not, the chances that the Redskins, with this owner and this team president, the chances that they have a run of five good years, not great years, just good years of being a playoff type of team, slim and none. It's never happened under Snyder. I don't know why anyone would think it would start happening now with Bruce Allen as his lead brain in the organization. This isn't this isn't a revelation to most of you. Most of you feel the exact same way. Most of you do. You would love it if somehow it weren't this way. And when the season starts, you have some hope that maybe they can you know, have, have themselves a good season. Let's go have ourselves a season, as my boy Zabe used to say. But the chances aren't very good of them having a run, a mini run, a five-year mini run of being a playoff contender every year. It's just, it's not. It starts at the top, and that their top is is really toxic. And, you know, the the, the people, is, is there a chance he could empower somebody, you know, much more competent and not as subpar as the people he, he has, you know, empowered and hired in recent years? I guess there's that chance, but what makes you think that he's going to do that? So... Anyway, I don't know what made me do that, but I just thought it was interesting that I got this one tweet that says, you're such a hater after yesterday's show, and a text saying, you're not tough enough. And I just thought, well, maybe I just haven't been as clear as I need to be. I'm a fan, but uh, my, my, my heart tells me, hey, maybe. My head tells me, probably not. I think a lot of you feel the same way. Uh, another thing as it relates to yesterday's show, I did not answer the question of whether or not I would trade number 15 overall for Josh Rosen. That off the reports that the Cardinals are, you know, they want a first for Rosen. Um, I, we talked about, you know, uh, the, the Rosen and 15, and I didn't, I don't think I made it clear as to whether or not I, I would do it or not. I think I've made it clear in the past, but I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll clear it up for you. Um, the answer is no. Um, I, I don't, but with that understood, and this is what I do, I guess. Um, I, I don't have the information on him as a person. And that's my biggest concern. I like him as a quarterback. I like him more than any quarterback in this draft. Cooley, uh, isn't a huge fan of Rosen. I think I like him more. Um, Cooley's, you know, Cooley being hesitant does make me a little bit hesitant on the football side, but I was a big fan of Rosen at UCLA. And I thought coming out last year, he was going to be a very good NFL quarterback, but there is all of this stuff about Rosen that's unknown, you know, him as a teammate, him and his love for the game, how much he really wants it. You know, all of the things that have been talked about when it comes to him, I don't have the answers to. So I would be reluctant to trade number 15 overall for Rosen. Now, an NFL organization like the Redskins, you know, if they're able to do proper due diligence, they would have the information on whether or not they buy into the person. You know, I don't trust their opinion on evaluations, but I'm talking about an NFL organization in general, a decent organization. They're going to have the ability to really do enough 
background interviewing due diligence to know whether or not this guy is, you know, more than just a great prospect as a quarterback. Uh, but I do like him as a quarterback. I, I, I did. Um, but I don't think because of those those questions that I would trade 15. I, I, I wouldn't. If you told me that I could trade back to the late 20s, I'd think more about it. If you told me it was going to cost a two, I think I would definitely roll the dice at that point. Uh, but there's just too much about him personally that none of us know. Let's get to the Sweet 16 um, in the games last night. Uh, the the Purdue-Tennessee game, there have been two great games in the tournament so far through the first night of the Sweet 16. The Duke-UCF game and then Purdue-Tennessee last night. That was a classic. A true classic. Now, a flawed game in many ways um, because it wasn't clean. Uh, people they, they kept talking about all the missed free throws Tennessee uh, you know had in the game and they were four for 13 in the first half and they finished 14 for 28. That's terrible from the free throw line. Uh, Purdue was worse from the line. They were 16 of 33 from the free throw line. There were 31 missed free throws in the game last night. 31 missed free throws. Purdue shot 48.5% from the free throw line and 48.5% from behind the three-point line. That's They were 15 of 31 on threes, 16 of 33 on free throws. Go figure. Tennessee was 12 of 24 from behind the arc and 14 of 28 from the free throw line. 50% on threes, 50% from the free throw line. Tennessee actually shot a dead even overall, 50% for the game. The game was one of those classics because it starts out with this incredible tempo, this incredible urgency from both teams, up-tempo game, people hitting shots from all over, missing you know easy shots, hitting long-range shots, steals, missed free throws, big shots, Purdue's you know, getting the better of it. They built an 18-point lead early in the second half of that game. It was, fi- I think, it got to 51 to 33. Pretty sure that 18 was the biggest lead. 18 was the biggest lead. Yeah, and that was relatively early in the second half. And then here comes Tennessee. First, it's a slow grind back to get it to like 12, and then to nine, and then it's back to 15, I think, again. But then came a big run, and it happened um, while Ryan Klein who had one of the great nights of the year for a shooter in college basketball. Seven of ten from behind the arc, five threes in the second half. He was unconscious in the second half. Also went to the bench with four fouls. Two phantom calls, by the way, uh, that I didn't think he fouled on. Um, But Tennessee came roaring back. Not only did they erase an 18-point lead, they took a three-point lead. But then Klein came back in the game. Klein hit a three. Uh, then Tennessee took the lead. Then Klein hit another three to give Purdue the lead. And it went back and forth. And then Tennessee built another three-point lead with about a minute left. And Klein hit another one. And the last one he hit was not the kind of three that Ryan Klein hits. Ryan Klein hits the three where somebody's penetrated and kicked to him and his feet are set and he can, and he can knock down an, a, a feet-set jump shot without having to beat anybody off the dribble, or he comes off screens 
and shoots off screens. The last three he made with 38 seconds left in the game with Purdue down three was Ryan Klein one-on-one, juking his defender, step back, and he knocked that one down. It was a show from Ryan Klein in the second half, especially over the last four minutes. It really was. And we know, because we've watched Purdue all years as Big Ten people, we know that Ryan Klein can shoot it. He can, but not like this. Yeah, he's and, had he's, he's had a couple of these games. He, he's not, had a couple. Okay, he had a couple, but you know he scored thirteen points combined in the two Maryland games. <laughs> yeah, remember the the three though he hit in College Park right before half from about thirty five feet. Oh, they yeah. didn't pick him up, and he had hit one earlier. And I remember because Maryland was down to Purdue at halftime at home. I think they were down eight, something like that, at half. And and what got it to eight was Klein hit like a thirty five footer. Uh, in that game. Um, he's had some big three-point shooting yes, games. Yes. Big three-point. It, it's not but unusual. As, but as you said, it was him being left open. It was, you yeah, know, things that's like right. that. Not, not creating this. your own offense. It, 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 wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, okay, who are we going to cover here? Klein or Carson Edwards? Okay, we're going to cl- choose to, cl- uh, to cover Klein so Carson yeah. Edwards can get a shot off. Um, I'm looking through his game log. Uh, early in the season, in the I guess this was the Big Ten ACC Challenge, they played Florida State, and he went 7 for 11 from behind the arc. And those were all of his points, 21 points. Um, he had a 5 for 8 game, 4 for 7, 4 for 6, 5 for 10, 6 for 7 game, um, a uh, 6 for 9 game from behind the arc. By the way, in the opener against Old Dominion, he was 1 for 11. From behind the arc, and then got 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 it going uh, with Carson Edwards and their blowout win over Villanova. Uh, the game was a great game. Th- there was some controversy in the game. Um, the controversy was at the end, down three, um, uh, down, down two, two. Excuse me, down two. Uh, Purdue had a final possession with two point five seconds left, underneath their own basket. Uh, first of all, Klein is throwing the inbounds pass, and I guarantee you they're running a play for Klein as the inbounds passer. More times than not, um, a lot of basic under-your-own-basket inbounds plays, the guy that you want to shoot it will usually be the trigger guy on the inbounds pass, lot, especially against zone, um, although Tennessee wasn't in zone in, in that particular situation. But anyway, I thought that it was very close to being a five-second violation. I, I, I thought it was like eight seconds. It I don't think it was eight. It was close. And then it he, was far. He forced it into Edwards in the corner, and Edwards shot a three and got fouled. And I thought it was a legitimate call. He got hit with the lower, you know, in the lower part of his body, you know, and he had not yet come down from his shooting motion. I actually thought it was a stupid foul. Um, but it was a legitimate call, I felt, in the moment. You don't always see a call. I'm not going to say that it was a guaranteed lock that they would call it. Um, but Edwards went to the line with one point, you know, six or whatever that was left with a chance to basically win the game by making three, and he missed the first one, made the other two, and the game went to overtime. And Purdue... Purdue, and this is why I, I like Matt Painter for a lot of reasons. I just I've liked these Purdue teams. Going back to the teams he had with Robbie Hummel and Hummel tore his ACL not once but twice, and I, I think he would have gotten a Final Four with with Hummel and some of those teams. But anyway, um, they run phenomenal half court offense. Always have, always will, and they ran sets. 
down the stretch in that game, pressure possessions after giving up an 18-point lead, and then in overtime that were awesome. Awesome. Had Tennessee completely going in multiple directions. They didn't know what they were doing. And Purdue scored, and they scored effectively, efficiently, with great offense. you got to understand something about these Purdue teams under Matt Painter. They don't have a bunch of five-star guys. All right, This team coming back off the, off the Sweet 16 last year was not supposed to be a Big Ten co-champion. Not even close. You know, it was a bunch of really, I mean, you, we can say that Carson Edwards, Edwards was really good last year, and he was, but we didn't see the kind of year he had coming this year. Uh, I don't know. I kind of did. I, well, I Then you were, you were by yourself. I thought he was a really good player. He was not, can, he was not a preseason, I don't think, top, was he a preseason All-Big Ten player? I'm pretty sure he was. Okay, but it, it wasn't like a lock to be a, a contender for player of the year. No, well, and, and most of the people thought that what would, prevent him from being player of the year was that he just had nothing around him I just think you you look at the Purdue teams under Matt Painter they they rarely have big-time recruiting classes um they are always seemingly in like what you would call uh, a rebuild mode you know they they're always talked about and they come out and they make sweet 16s you know that's his fifth sweet 16 first elite eight they don't Carson Edwards is a star, but just so you know, it's not like this guy's a mocked first rounder. I haven't seen him in one mock draft first round as a junior. Have you? I've seen him in some second rounds, and I've seen him not even mentioned. I mean, Edwards, to me, looks like an NBA player. He's able to create his own offense, and he's got a ridiculous, you know, quick trigger, you know, deep jump shot. Like, he can pull up from 30. Um, and he did a couple times last night. Um, I think this guy Eastern is, you know, a, a legit athlete. I don't know where he was ranked uh, as a college player. I would, uh, as a high school player, but I would bet, you know, higher than Ryan Klein was. You know, uh, T- Eifert, who is, you know, Tyler Eifert's younger brother, Grady Eifert, who plays for Purdue. Tyler Eifert, the tight end in Cincinnati. Um, his brother's a walk-on, and he's a significant player on Purdue's team. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I love Matt Painter. I think that his teams are always super well coached. I feel that way about Barnes too, to a, to a certain degree. But I've always, those of you who have listened, know that I've always thought that Purdue and Painter in particular is underrated. Now they get a chance to go to his first Final Four. It would be Purdue's first Final Four since 1980. They've had basketball tradition, Purdue. They've been a one seed. You know, some of Gene Cady's teams were really good and supposed to be Final Four teams that never got there. They're one of those programs that you know is a good basketball program. They're just not an elite basketball program. But you know it matters at Purdue. It matters more than football does at Purdue. They're one of the big... The Big Ten has Maryland, Indiana, and Purdue that I would call basketball first schools. Do you do, uh, who am I forgetting? Um I guess Michigan State might be close. Nah. You don't think it's close? I think it's close, but it's debatable. Yeah. It's just like Wisconsin, it's debatable. Yeah. Um Purdue, I don't think it's debatable. I think most Purdue, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong if you're a Purdue alum or or a P- Purdue fan, but I when Purdue came here for the first time for their first game as a Big Ten t- with Maryland in the Big Ten, Scott and I were at the game and we ended up sitting with like ten Purdue guys that had come from Indiana to to see a game in College Park and 
And I remember having this conversation and they all said, no, basketball, basketball's number one. Um, I, I think that's the only Maryland, Indiana, and Purdue are the only obvious schools where basketball is the most important sport. I think I'm right about that. Illinois football's still more important, isn't it? Even though they've probably had better basketball tradition and success. Yeah, I'd assume so. Anyway, um Minnesota's hockey first. <laughs> yeah, Minnesota's hockey first. But anyway, I, I'm I'm happy for Purdue. I'm happy for the Big Ten. You know, Michigan didn't show well. Get to that game in a moment. But I think the Big Ten's proven here um that it it was quite the grind and you know, Purdue took out a team that was ranked number one this season, and a lot of people had not only getting to the Final Four, but some of you had in the championship game. Uh, so they're there. I, 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 My first glance at this is I think they've got a legit shot to beat Virginia. First of all, I like the point spread. I like that it's only four, four and a half. I think the public's probably going to play Virginia is my guess. Maybe not. They didn't. Pl- they played Oregon, which is surprising. Um, and remember, Purdue is used to playing a team like Virginia. Uh there Wisconsin's the the perfect, you know, comparable to 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 the way Virginia plays. So so Purdue's not going to be caught off guard by the way Virginia plays. I like their chances. I, that should be a hell of a game. I mean, I I it's not going to the result in that game. I'm probably going to have Purdue plus the four and a half. Um but if Virginia wins a tight game, it's not going to be shocking, but I'm going to be rooting uh for uh, the Boilers. Um the other games last night uh, Florida State, you know, just they turn it over too much. Gonzaga, man, if you guys haven't seen Gonzaga play because you're you're paying attention really for the first time because it's the tournament, this is a team with maybe the most athleticism than any team left in the draw now. Florida State, you could have probably said that about. You know, Auburn and Auburn's got some athleticism. Tennessee does. Kentucky. Kentucky does. But you'd be hard-pressed to find as many players that have ridiculous quicks, ups, agility, all of that, than Gonzaga. Gonzaga's got them in spades. And they are – this is a very good basketball team. Just a a really, really good basketball team. You know what's interesting about uh, Gonzaga? At the beginning of the year, Hachimura, who is their their Japanese player – um, they're 6'8", 220, 230-pound power forward. Um, he was being mocked out as you know a lottery pick. And now, over the last couple of months, Brandon Clark has really emerged as perhaps a top half of the guy uh, pick. I mean, they've got first-round picks on their team everywhere. Yeah. Uh, they, they may be – Duke in terms of you know four first-round picks, three in the top six – Right. No one has that much NBA talent on their team. Gonzaga's close, though. Look, there's a reason I had Gonzaga going all the way. I thought, especially offensively, they were the best team all season long. Florida State could not make a shot. They turned it over uh, too much. Um, They still made a run late. Gonzaga ended up covering. Uh, The game that was truly ugly was the Texas Tech-Michigan game. I said on the podcast yesterday, first team to 63 wins, and Texas Tech got to 63. It's amazing that they got to 63 with the way the game started. It was 6-6 to with eight minutes to go in the first half. I think that's what it was. It's somewhere around there. Hold on. It was 6-6. to Here we go. 6-6 to with nine minutes and 21 seconds left. That's when Texas Tech made a bucket to give them an 8-6 to lead more than halfway through the first half. 
Unbelievable. Uh, Michigan could not make a shot to save their life. They were down 24-16 at halftime. They went 0 for their first 18 from behind the arc and then hit a late one when it didn't matter. Um, They were 1 for 19. Michigan finished 1 for 19 on threes. These were two very good defensive teams. Texas Tech made shots. Michigan didn't. I thought it was much harder for Michigan to score than it was for Texas Tech to score in watching the game. I thought Texas Tech's defense was even better than Michigan's. But that is the kind of game when you're watching it, you're like, you know that the first team that opens up like an eight-point lead is going to be tough to catch because an eight-point lead in that game felt like a 16-point lead, and Texas Tech blew Michigan out. Wow. I mean, we watched a lot of Michigan this year, knew how good they were defensively. Uh, I didn't think any team could bring them to a complete standstill offensively the way Texas Tech did. And yes, Jarrett Culver is the real deal. Like He... He's got a lot going on in his frame. Uh, you know, he is so long. He anticipates so well. He's got a lot going on. He is, uh, you know, he's been pretty much a consensus top 10 pick yeah. all year long um, for Texas Tech. And, you know, Chris Baird's doing an unbelievable job. I so mean, who, who offers him just the blank check? Because at I, this point, at this point, if you have a job opening, even if you don't think you get him, that has to be your first play, right? Just say, how much does it take, or is there any money amount of money I, we can pay you to bring you in, right? I saw Jeff Ehrman tweet this out. I'm, I'm looking for it right now. Um, this is back-to-back Elite Eights for Texas Tech. Yes. Okay? Texas Tech. Hardly a basketball power. One of the worst, as of five years ago, one of the worst Power 5 jobs in the country. Before last year's Elite 8 run under Chris Beard, uh, they hadn't won a tournament game since 2005, and that's when Bobby Knight was at Texas Tech. Uh, Who throws him a check, a blank check? Well, I mean, it depends on what the situation with self at Kansas is. That would be the obvious one. I mean, I don't think he necessarily leaves Texas Tech to go take the Tennessee job, which will probably be available. Um, what about the UCLA job? By the way, there have been some, you know, tweets. I don't know if they're genuine. I don't know if they're, you know, quality reporting uh, or reporters about Patino in UCLA. Well, I mean, if you think I told, that I he told got, you that Turgeon had left, like for Nebraska or whatever. Right. I would have said I, I wouldn't have had a problem. With if, if you think he got a Unless raw deal, a show cause. he can coach. Yeah. Oh no, he can definitely coach. Yeah. And he would turn UCLA immediately into a contender. Um, I don't know. Can- I, Kansas is the answer because we don't know how the self and the Kansas stuff will play out. You know, I I don't like firing a coach until you're you know really ready to fire him. But if I'm Texas right now, I'm it, I just I, he's he's an alum. Well, he is an alum of Texas, and I am surprised because I have heard about Shaka Smart being on thin ice at Texas. So if I'm them right now, I say, will you come here right now? Obviously, you can't do it while he's in the tournament. He probably won't even be receptive to it. But the day after they go out, I say, what will it take for you to come here and fire Shaka to do it? Yeah. Um, Look, to do what he's done at Texas Tech, and and they've been impressive in doing it too. Like, that was impressive last night, the way they shut Michigan down completely. Um, It's going to be much more difficult for them to shut Gonzaga down. 
uh, on Saturday. Uh, that line is what? Did you say that line's four, four and a half, two? I haven't seen it. Um, the other game we didn't talk about is is the Virginia game. Uh, it was an ugly game. It was an ugly game, but, you know, uh, if you're a Virginia fan, you know, you didn't play well last night. Oregon gave you fits with their defense and with their length defensively, which is really impressive. And you can sort of see watching Oregon, and I didn't see a lot of them during the regular season in this tournament, why they got on a roll you know, late in the season and why they were able to win a couple of games uh, in this tournament, you know, uh, shutting down Wisconsin and then they beat UCI, I guess, uh, Cal Irvine in the second game. But the reason they were there last night was their defense. You know, they were really disruptive. Uh, Virginia shot poorly. They didn't get a lot of open looks. When they did, they were, you know, I thought DeAndre Hunter had a terrible game last night offensively. I, You know, he, he... I know he's been mocked as high as like six or seven. I don't see it with him. I, I see him as, as a guy that's going to get drafted, don't get me wrong. But I don't see like obvious lottery and NBA potential in Hunter. I think he's a really good player. I don't, I'd don't. i be surprised if he ends up going in the top half of the draft by the time all is said and done. Uh, but Jerome hit a couple of big shots late, a huge shot late uh, with the score tied to give him a three-point lead at 48-45, and Virginia wins 53-49. to You know, I, I was listening to Tony, uh, listening to, uh, to uh, Tony Bennett after the game, and he said, you know, we didn't do a lot of the things that we like to do and weren't able to do them, but, you know, he pretty much gave Oregon credit. He said they were a very unique defensive team. They had a bunch of, you know, athletes that were long. They were able to switch you know, uh, basically throughout the game at any position. Um, and it was a difficult team for them to deal with. And and they got through. Like, okay, you're, you're in the Elite Eight again. You got a chance against a team you're favored against to get to the Final Four. You survived this game. Imagine how much worse it would be if Oregon had hit the big three late and had gone on to win it. I mean, every once in a while, you make a run, you win a national championship with a stinker in there along the way. And it wasn't a pretty game for Virginia, but they got the win. I do like their their freshman point guard, Clark. I think he's clutch. He does a lot of good things to, to make that team better. They got nothing from their bench. Virginia's 53 points came from five starters. In fact, their bench only played a combined 11 minutes generated not one field goal attempt, not one point, and only two rebounds statistically from their bench. Uh, Anyway, they're in, uh, and I'm I'm, I'm happy for them. I'm going to be happy. That Virginia-Purdue game is the game I'm looking forward to Saturday. I mean, I'm going to watch all of them, but I'm... I'm going to be happy with either result. I'm rooting for Purdue, but I'm going to be happy for a lot of the Virginia people if they finally break through here. Tony Bennett certainly had a – he's built a powerhouse that just hasn't gotten the tournament results quite yet. Uh, all right, let's do a smell test for tonight's games. Kevin looks where the John Q. public is putting their cash and does the opposite. It's, it's time, time for the, the smell test. test. All right, 2-1 and one last night. Gonzaga, uh, Purdue um, were winners. Uh, Virginia was the loser, uh, laying uh, 7.5 in that game. Um, tonight I've got one play. There's only one truly, you know, heavily bet public game, and that's the public loves North Carolina. So give me Auburn plus the 5.5 um, in this game. Um, 
I did that stupid formula before the tournament started with you and Tommy, where I gave you know I came up with some criteria that allowed me to narrow the field of sixty eight down to basically five or six teams that that I thought could, would win it. One one of those five or six teams would win it. And it was like teams that score, teams that score efficiently, teams that have excellent guard play, and teams that are reasonably well coached. And one of the teams that was in that final group of five, actually, because I eliminated LSU because of their coaching situation, one of those teams was Auburn. I had Carolina, Tennessee, Auburn, Michigan State, and Iowa State. Iowa State got beat in the first round. Uh, But Auburn, North Carolina tonight, and Auburn can really score, and they've got great guard play. Um, and and that is why I think they're, it makes – I like them because of the anti-public piece more than anything else. But I give them a legitimate shot even just in straight, you know, analyzing the game. This is a team um, with, with guards in, in Bryce Brown and Jared Harper that not only control tempo um, but do the bulk of Auburn's scoring – um, they are good long-range shooters. They are good at getting to the rim, Harper in particular. Um, they've got athletes at other positions. You know, the North Carolina team, I, the pace in which this game is going to be played at is going to make it so much fun to watch. The total right now, 165 in this game. Uh I mean, 165 is a pretty that, that, high total. That's kind of ridiculous for a college game. Um, in fact, uh, Auburn hasn't had a game all season um, that has had a total uh, anywhere near 165. Very early in the season, they played a game against Xavier where the over-under total was 163. And I, play, I think they played LSU the last time they played LSU. Um, it was like 159 and a half. But this one's at 165. In part because Bruce Pearl apparently told Van Pelt on his show, play the over. Did you hear about that? I didn't hear yeah, that. Yeah, Scott told me about it yesterday. He had, he had uh, Bruce Pearl on the show the other night, and Pearl said, uh, you know, all I can tell you is play the over, basically. Okay. Um, Carolina, meantime, you know, on the total, they've had a bunch of games in the in the mid-160s, including um, their first two tournament, uh, or their, the, their first tournament game against Iona was a 166 total. Um, that went under, uh, by the way. Uh, I don't have a strong feel on the total on the game, but it, it's it's set up to be a highly entertaining game where very rarely w- will you approach the end of a shot clock. And I don't see any reason why Auburn would try to slow Carolina down or vice versa. It's going to come down to who can get out, who can finish, and who can make shots. I like Auburn plus the 5.5 because they're a major anti-public play. I also like their chances... Um, because they've got a very good team, and I like their chances potentially to just win this game outright against North Carolina. Uh, I think that's in play. So that's the, that's the smell test uh, pick on this particular game. I'm going to be at Capital One tonight. I like Michigan State personally to beat LSU, and I, I, I like Duke to beat Virginia Tech. Um, you know, Duke didn't have Zion, and Virginia Tech was missing. You know, obviously a, a key player as well. The last time they they played at Castle Coliseum, where, where Tech pulled it off. It's going to be an interesting environment tonight. I was listening to Jim Nance this morning on with the Junkies on 106.7, and he said, oh, man, he said it's too bad Maryland didn't get there because that would have been quite the scene at Capital One Arena. And he's right, but it's still going to be it's still going to be a great environment for college basketball tonight. Duke's got a massive following. Um, Virginia Tech's got, you know, clearly a geographic, you know, 
a reasonable cl- close following. Although I think actually you can make it to Durham faster than you can make it to Blacksburg. Um, you can. Yeah. Uh, Michigan State uh, has a lot of alum in the D.C. market. LSU is obviously you know playing here on borrowed time because th- their program's going to take a hit when all of this is over. They're, they're, they're trying to get out of the tournament quickly so they can raise that banner before they have to take yeah, it down. Yeah. Um, I like Michigan State to win. I think Michigan State's got too much for LSU. I like Duke, but the familiarity that Virginia Tech has with Duke will be helpful. Um, I don't like Duke to advance, though. I like Michigan State ultimately to come out of this region. Uh, And then in the Houston-Kentucky game, it's a really interesting game, in part because no one really knows that much about Houston, but they are really good. And we have seen in this tournament a lot of good defensive teams advance here. You know, part of, of the tournament is Gary Williams said it to me years ago. You got to be able to score to win six in a row. In the Sweet 16, we have had dominant defensive teams like Texas Tech and Michigan and Oregon and Virginia. And then tonight, you throw Houston into that mix. Houston's a great defensive team. I definitely give Houston a chance to win this game tonight against a Kentucky team that, you know, is P.J. Washington healthy and available? I think he is. Supposedly he is. Um, But this should be a hell of a game tonight. I I like Houston's chances, and I would probably pick Houston. I'll probably play Houston plus the two and a half. Uh, But the smell test uh, confined um, to one selection, Auburn plus the five and a half. Looking forward to uh, some good hoops uh, tonight and throughout the weekend. And I will put out, like I did last weekend, uh, a smell test on Twitter Saturday and Sunday. Real quick word about Window Nation. Window Nation's got a really good deal going right now. Buy two windows, get two windows free. You can buy a house of windows for just $69 a month. And right now, if you call them, mention my name, they will come out and give you a free in-home estimate with a price that is valid for 60 days. Window Nation's installed windows in my home twice over the last 10 years. It's worked out for me. It's worked out for some of you who have listened to the show over the years. My wife is a real estate agent. She's had Window Nation put windows into some of her clients' homes uh, to get them ready for uh, sale, and it's always worked out for her as well. Window Nation is the fifth largest window retailer in the United States. They've installed windows in over 85,000 homes with over 10,000 positive online reviews and a 97% customer satisfaction rating. In fact, in the last year, if quality is important to you, Window Nation's customers scored them as follows. 99.5% of all windows installed last year required no follow-up service. Harley and Aaron and Eric do a great job at Window Nation. Right now, go to windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION. Mention my name. You'll get two windows for every two windows you buy with no limit. So if you need 15 windows... Uh, you'll get seven and you have to pay for seven and a half of them. If you get thirty windows, you get them for fifteen for the price of fifteen. Um, no limit on the buy two get two free. You can buy a house of windows for just sixty nine dollars a month, and you get a free in home estimate with a price valid for sixty days, uh, no risk by just calling them again at eight six six ninety nation or go to windownation dot com. 
All right, let's bring in Mark Zuckerman, who is uh, writing uh, per usual for MassInSports.com. You can follow him on Twitter, at Mark Zuckerman. Um, longtime uh, person on the air uh, with me and all the shows on 980, and uh, someone who I enjoy talking um, Nats baseball with, and, and hopefully we'll be able to do that a few times during the course of the season, which got underway yesterday with a 2 nothing shutout loss uh, to Jake DeGrom uh, and the Mets. Um, I, I actually, before we get to sort of some of the season big picture you know, predictions and, and thoughts. I wanted to start with the game yesterday with a couple of key spots in the game. Do you think Scherzer should have hit for himself in the seventh? I was surprised by that. Um, not because I didn't think that Max had more in him to come back out and pitch the, the eighth inning. He was at 93 pitches, I think, at that point. He had thrown 97 in his last spring training start. Uh, he had primed himself to be able to get up to 100-plus pitches. And... You know, he struck out two of the three batters he faced in the eighth. So right. it wasn't so much of that. I felt it was more a case of you're down one nothing. You're running out of outs in this game. Uh, your best bat on the bench is Matt Adams. It's a one nothing game at this point. Why not take a shot with him uh, to try to tie the game up or at least get on base and set the stage for something else? And Davey's explanation was that he felt like uh, that spot was going to come up again in the game. It turns out it didn't come up. Uh, Adams did hit, but it was pinch hitting for Gomes in the ninth inning. Right. It felt to me like that was a moment to say, you know what, as much as I love Max, as much as I believe he could still uh, go deeper in this game, we're trailing. We need to try to score a run here, and the guy off my bench gives me a better chance of that happening. Yeah, uh, that that makes sense. Um, do you think, what about the decision to to have Grace come in and pitch to Cano? Yeah, that was the other kind of head-scratcher, only because uh, they went out and signed a top lefty in spring training, Tony Sipp, specifically for this reason. They know how many big lefty hitters they're going to face in the NL East this year. Cano is high on that list. Uh, Sipp did not pitch in any spring training games. He pitched in minor league games. But the word that we got yesterday morning was that he was ready to go. He had uh, gotten enough work. He was comfortable, ready to go. And he did wind up warming up later on, I think, uh, in the ninth and never came into the game. Now, the one thing there is that uh, over his career, he hasn't had success against Cano. They faced each other a lot in the American League West. Cano 7-for-21 with three homers against him. So I think he felt like the matchup with Grace maybe was a little bit better. Uh, Grace didn't make a bad pitch. It was kind of a nice swing by Cano to just dump the ball in the left field. But again, you, in the bigger picture, I look at, okay, you got to the end of the first day of the season. You have an off day today. Everybody's available in your bullpen, whoever you want to use. He wound up warming up his top three relievers in theory, Doolittle, Rosenthal, and Sip, and none of them ever actually got into the game. Right. Um, over the course of a long season, yeah, you have to manage them and be careful not to overuse them. But on opening day when everybody's available and you have the next day off, you're not saving anything up. I thought that was a little bit curious. So, you know, it's one game and there are 161 left, but one of the concerns from – you know, diehards and people like you who cover the team, and I'm not putting this on you, I, I don't know your position on this, is just that he struggled last year at times to manage his bullpen. Yeah, no, that's fair. It is a fair criticism. I think it's a fair criticism of a lot of managers in baseball. Yeah, um, Tommy there says. are very few who are that good at uh, bullpen management, but it is a big part of the job of the X's and O's part of the game, certainly. 
Um, you saw early in the season last year guys like Madsen and Kinsler and Solis maybe getting overused a little bit. Um, there were some gripes about it in the middle of the season. Kinsler wound up getting traded. Uh, Madsen had some injuries. Solis had all kinds of troubles in the second half. Uh, now, what I would also say is when you're in close games and you don't have faith in your other guys and your starters were hurt in a lot of cases last year, um, you may have no choice but to go to your relievers in those situations. But it's a fine balance. It is something that Davey, I think, acknowledges that uh, now that he knows the team a little better in year two, he should be better at. He knows the personalities. He knows that the relievers themselves are better able to speak up and say, hey, I'm good to go today, or you know what, I really need a day off. Um, so it's going to be something to watch all season long, of course. And uh, there are a lot of ways this team needs to improve from last year, and one of those ways uh, is the manager and his decisions late in games of who to pull out of the bullpen when. You know, the other thing, too, I was thinking yesterday, um, you know, there's Max Scherzer pitching another gem. He gives up an early home run, and he's been prone to, you know, early home runs in the past. But, you know, losing a 2 nothing game, I, 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 haven't, I didn't go back and check, and you probably have this information, but it seemed like there were at least a half dozen one nothing and 2 nothing games he lost last year. It felt like it, sure. Yeah, he he lost several of them. I, I don't know the exact number. I did see a stat earlier this morning that uh, the Nationals had 18 times last year their starting pitcher had a quality start and the team didn't win the game, and that was among the most in baseball. Uh, and you just hope that that doesn't come up again. But, you know, it's like on, on one hand you say, hey, you lose 2 nothing to Jacob deGrom, Cy Young Award winner on opening day. No big deal. And, yes, that's true. And yet, that game was right there for the taking. Sure. They had the ability to beat DeGrom and to take advantage of this just gem by Scherzer. It was the one mistake to know in the first inning. And otherwise, I mean, he was brilliant. I would argue he was even better than DeGrom, even though the, the runs allowed in the end um, were, were different. But, I mean, Max was firing on all cylinders yesterday. And in this division, as tough as it looks like it's going to be, and with the kind of quality pitching that they're going to be seeing a lot, you know, they get Syndergaard tomorrow. They're going to get Aaron Nola when they face the Phillies. Um, they're going to have to win games like that. They're going to have to beat good pitchers, and their own pitching staff is going to have very little margin for error because they're going to have to try to win some of these games two to one. As you were speaking, I, I looked up you know his game log um, from last year. Four times last year, he started and lost games in which the final score was either two to nothing or one to nothing. Yeah, and yeah. and and, <laughs> and not only that, he, there were another three games that he won with just a run or two runs of offensive production, but he shut but he shut out the opponent. Yeah, um, and I think there's going to be more of that this year again because of the schedule and, and who they're facing and the style of team that they're going to have. There's going to be more of those kind of games. They have to find a way to win those. All right, I'm going to ask you the question that you know uh, about Bryce Harper. You know, it's just one game, but did it seem different without him? Um, no, honestly, it, it. I don't think it did, and I think in part because Soto is kind of the focal point of the lineup now. He, he sort of takes over that uh, that role where that's the at bat everyone's looking at. That's the bat the opposing team is kind of uh, game planning for, and I think you saw it in the first inning where they pitched around him uh, once Trey Turner stole second base, and that right. uh, allowed them to then go face Zimmerman instead. It's one reason why 
if it's me, I think I would rather have Rendon hitting behind Soto instead of the other way around. I'd like to have Rendon protecting him just like I like to have Rendon protecting Bryce. Um, if he is the focal point of the lineup, if he's going to be drawing a lot of walks, you've got to have a lot of faith in the guy behind you to get the job done. Uh, we saw too many times in the past that Bryce, if he didn't trust the guy behind him, that's when he started expanding his own and trying to do too much uh, instead of uh, just taking his walks and knowing that the guy behind him would bring him in. Um, you know, again, it's one game. Zimmerman smoked a line drive to third base that if it's six inches the other direction, right. it's a, a base hit that, that gives him a run. But these are all these little things that they talked about all spring, and they didn't do them yesterday. And over the course of the season, they're going to have to be better at it. By the way, just to, um, to digress for a moment on Harper, uh, for those that missed it yesterday, on his second strikeout yesterday uh, in the Philadelphia home opener, he got booed by Philadelphia fans. <laughs> and, you know, one of the Tommy and I got into this argument um, a few weeks back uh, after Harper signed, and I said, don't underestimate um, the possibility. And because he had said this, you know, during free agency, and he said it yesterday, and I watched his post-game interview um, in Philadelphia, that he wanted a real, you know, enthusiastic, emotional, passionate, into it fan base, you know, and sports town for that matter. Which, you know, it was there were subtle shots, you know, over the years about DC as a sports town and the Nats as a fan base. And I think he wanted to be in Philadelphia for the money first. I mean, that was Tommy's point. It was all about the money. But he has said it enough now and said yesterday, wow, what an opening day crowd. I love this city. I love the fans, the whole thing. But I'm wondering, based on your experience with him and being around him a little bit, is he thick-skinned enough to deal with what is a legitimate, you know, sports town and and what he'll have to go through when he's you know in a tw- in a twelve-game slump? Yeah, no, I, I think it's absolutely fair. You know, if they were booing yesterday, that's a little more of a sarcastic, like, Perhaps. Hey, come on, it's opening day, prove us. Fair, but yeah. but that fuse is going to be short. And and if he goes over three again tomorrow, uh, and if they don't win the game, and a few things like that happen, they're going to be a little more genuine. Booze. Uh, I think it's absolutely fair to question how he will deal with that. It, I always felt like from the beginning that if he left DC, he was going to want to go somewhere where there was a real uh, rabid fan base that was a really good baseball town with uh, big crowds and passionate crowds every night. You could tell when they were on the road and they were in places like Chicago and New York and even Philly early on before they went through their down uh, cycle and even place like LA, which draws big crowds every night. He, he feeds off that stuff. And I think he cares about that stuff. Um, now that said, Philly's a little different animal and they will love you forever if you perform and they will turn on you immediately if you don't. And so uh, the concern I would maybe have with him there is, knowing all this, knowing what's at stake, uh, the contract and everything else, does he put too much on himself and try to now do too much to perform and and, uh, live up to the billing? And that's when he gets in trouble, when he tries to do too much. He's got to stay patient. Like I said, take his walks and trust the guys behind him, uh, not expand the zone, not try to be everything for them. That's the thing that I'm going to be watching here early on because he's a guy who plays on so much emotion and that can be great at times, but it can also be a downfall at times. Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because I, I got into that uh, argument with not only Tommy, but Aaron too here about 
you know, just hearing him say it over and over again about, you know, being a sports fan and wanting to be in a real sports city, you know, not, not direct shots at DC, but subtle shots. And I thought his reaction yesterday where he was over the top talking about, you know, the, the electricity in the stadium for opening day. And it was, you know, the fan base and the city and the, the vibe. Um, but I, I agree with you. It's Philly's different. And, and by the way, you know, they haven't been the greatest of, of baseball fans necessarily or the most consistent over the years either. But we know what they will be with a winner uh, if, if the exactly. Phillies. Exactly. That, yeah. that stretch of five years where they were winning big, yeah. that was a great uh, baseball town. Other years, no, not so much. And it's, Look, I, I really think deep down, if the money was equal and things played out differently, he would have chosen a couple other places over Philly. But in the end, they were the ones that offered him the gargantuan yeah. contract and the ability not to have to go to free agency again, and that's why he chose to go there. All right, back to the Nats. Do you? Tommy said yesterday to me that Dave Martinez is on the hot seat. Is that is that a fair description of year two for him? Um, I think the whole team is on the hot seat. I think I would look at it that way. Like there, there's going to be some pressure after the way last year went to to be better, um, to get back to the postseason, and then once they get there to start winning. But one step at a time here. Um, I think it's it's only natural to say, okay, they have never had a manager for more than two and a half years, and they just fired the last guy after winning back to back division titles because they didn't win in October. So now the new guy who comes in only wins 82 games, doesn't get to the playoffs, and if they uh, don't do well, especially out of the gates this year, then it's only going to be natural to say, well, hang on, he's not living up to the expectations that the owners have now set. Um, what I will say, though, is this. They gave him a three-year contract. He's the first manager they've done this with, kind of guilt-tripped into it because that is the industry standard for first-time managers, and they had never done it before. Are they going to, if things don't go perfectly, are they going to say, we're going to eat all that. It's not a lot of money, but it is an extra year. Are they going to do all that? And then who else are you going to go find, knowing the situation here, that they don't pay managers well and they don't last for long? Um, that's a tough spot to be in. So I think even if things don't go swimmingly, there may be a sense in the organization of, hey, we have to stick with this. We've got to give this thing a, a shot uh, to work. I will tell you that the players like and respect him. He's a really good communicator with them, that even as things went downhill last year, that clubhouse stayed together, and that was noted by a lot of people, and there were years in the past where that didn't happen. And I think that that stood out to a lot of people as maybe a a good sign for him. But you're under pressure to win, and those X's and O's and situations like we saw yesterday are ultimately what he's going to be judged on, uh, and they're going to have to be better in those spots so that the seat doesn't become hot at any point. Is there any is there any regret in the organization about not getting a deal done with Bud Black from anybody? Uh, I think there probably is some, yeah, that, that would say, like, boy, we had ourselves like a pretty good manager. We could have locked up, and, and, and we blew it in a way. Um, now, at the same token, they struck gold with Dusty for those two years. Right. Uh, whatever you want to say about the guy, he won 95 and 97 games and took him to the playoffs and won the division and all that. So they kind of lucked their way into that. Um, I think more than anything, it's, it's, there is certainly frustration among many um, in, in the front office and, and as you work your way down from there towards ownership and this feeling of for all the, the success they've had and all the things they've learned over the years about how to run a franchise, 
for some reason, that's still among the biggest things they haven't quite gotten yet, is how to value a manager and continuity and how important that is. And again, I, I said this last year, and I still believe it. It's not just that they changed managers, but they changed almost the entire coaching staff. Right. And that was a tough spot to put all those guys in last year. Now the whole staff is back. They know the players. But uh, you, you find organizations where you have coaches who've been with that organization for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, that makes a difference, that kind of organizational philosophy and understanding. And here's how we do things in the minor leagues and guys managing to coach them when they were coming up through the farm system. That stuff matters, and that has not been the case here because of the constant turnover. All right, finish the following sentence. Uh, the Nats are going to win 90 or so games and qualify for the postseason because of blank more than anything else. <clears throat> I will say because of starting pitching more than anything else. Um, this is the way they've been built throughout this entire run. Uh, of Mike Rizzo believes that the best way to – to win, especially over 162 games, is with a dominant rotation. And last year, even though Scherzer was great, Strasburg was hurt at times and not his usual self. Geo and Roark had down years. Hellickson was good, but then he got hurt. And the guys they had to fill in did not get the job done at all. Uh, and as a, a, a team, as a rotation, they were middle of the pack in ERA. Um, when they've been at their best, they've had one of the best rotations in baseball. They think this group should be better. If they stay healthy, I think that will be true. But the depth is a big question mark there if anybody goes down. And so I would say the biggest um, key to whether this team gets back to October is going to be with that five-man rotation. And can they be one of the best in baseball like they should be? On the flip side, they win 82 games because what happened? Uh, injuries probably above all else. Um particularly the pitching staff, because I think there's depth issues there. I think it applies to the bullpen um, as well. Uh, I think the lineup is going to be okay. They're going to have to score runs differently, and we saw yesterday that um, that could be a challenge at times. Uh, I, I don't think this is going to be a, a case of internal, you know, they're being behind-the-scenes drama, anything like that. Like I said, that could have happened last year, and it didn't. Um, so I, I, I think injuries, and I think if that, pitching staff cannot live up uh, to what it should be. And if they cannot be a more fundamentally sound team, manufacturing runs, running the bases well, that Robles play yesterday really cost them. Right. Uh, and, and, and winning close games. They were 18-24 and 24 in one-run games last year. They know all this. They know that's what has to change. Um, but if they can't fix those problems, then I think you're looking at another uh, you know, 500 kind of season where they are left out. All right, last question, and I'll let you run. Uh, just handicap the National League East. How do you see it? Where do the Nats finish among the Braves and the Phillies and the Mets? Yeah, I mean, there are four teams that legitimately think they can win the division. Uh, whether that plays out, I don't know, but it's kind of refreshing to, for change to see a division where four teams are actually going for it, and you can make a case for any one of them. They all have issues. Um, not one of them, you could say, is clearly the front runner coming into this or um, – you know, has no significant uh, potential landmine along the way. In my prediction, I actually had the Braves winning the division for the second straight year. They've been under the radar. They didn't make the big splashy moves like the other teams did, but they won 90 games last year with a lot of young talent in their lineup, and they're supposed to have uh, uh, this big crop of young pitching that's going to emerge at some point this season. So I'm, I'm maybe 
um, banking on that happening. I've got the Nats second as a wild card. I've actually got the Phillies as another wild card. Wow. Up an epic one-game yeah. winner-take-all. Where is it? At Nats Park. Oh, that Nats, at Nats Park. Park. At Nats Park, yeah. I mean, you know, look, I had to go with the emotional uh, path there. Is it likely to happen? I don't know. It, it's going to be tough for three teams to win, you know, 90-plus games. Um, but and, and the Mets, I do think they can contend, but they have to stay healthy. They have less margin for error than the other teams because – so much is built on those those top two guys in the rotation and guys in their lineup uh, who have not stayed healthy over the years. Um, so that's the landmine for them. But I do think they can if everything comes together. But um, it should be a great race. I hope it is a great down-to-the-wire race with multiple teams in it because we have not had that. No, not, not one. It's always been somebody running away with it. And it would, I think, be a lot of fun to experience a real pennant race in late September. You know, it's interesting about that because we've had four Octobers of postseason baseball, you know, going back to 2012, yet not one true August-September pennant race that the Nats have been involved in. And that sometimes is what really captures, you know, a a, a city, is is a pennant race. I mean, we've gotten to the postseason with the expectation that they were going to be in the postseason the four years that they made it. And those series, you know, the Cardinals series, the Giants, the Cubs, and and the Dodgers series were, were exciting, all of them. Um, but there wasn't a a drawn out you know month to to ninety day you know there's sixty day you know uh, pennant race where you're living with it you know night in and night out. I think that would be cool to see. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I, that that you know every night watching the scoreboard and right. oh hey did the Braves take the lead and oh well where's it going to leave them at the end of the night? Yeah, absolutely. And you know whether this actually matters or not, but I've always kind of wondered this, and we've seen the alternate of it, which is that the Nats have kind of coasted into the playoffs and then not been able to win. Maybe there's something to be said for playing meaningful do-or-die games for several weeks leading up to it and carrying that momentum into the playoffs if it comes to well, if you're right, they're going to have at least one do or die game, <laughs> and it would. Be, we'll see. That would be pretty epic. Yeah, that would be. Um, thanks for doing this as always. I I always appreciate it and and enjoy it. Thanks, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Quick word about Scentbird. Uh, Scentbird is a luxury fragrance subscription service. It's a way to discover new colognes or perfumes without having to buy an entire bottle. This is important because good colognes and perfumes are expensive, and a lot of you don't really know what you're looking for. You probably don't even know exactly what you're wearing, some of you guys out there, because you you got a gift from a girlfriend or a wife few years back and you've been wearing the same thing ever since. Well, Scentbird really makes it easy and inexpensive. First of all, they've got plenty of designer brands for you to choose from each month, 450 of them in fact. Gucci, Tom Ford, Kenneth Cole, Burberry, Prada, and more. You choose the clone you want to try and they're going to send you a 30-day supply. If you're not sure what type of perfume or for your girlfriend or wife or uh, cologne that you want, Scentbird makes it easy. They've got user ratings and reviews, and they've got a quiz you can take that will personalize a recommendation for you. Here's the offer right now for my listeners only. Get 50% off your first month today. That's $7.50 off your off your first cologne or perfume. Go to scentbird.com slash KSDC. Use my code KKevinSSteveDDougCCharlie for 50% off your first month. That's KSDC. 
Again, scentbird, S-C-E-N-T, bird.com slash K-S-D-C for you to try your first cologne or perfume for just $7.50. Sign on, smell amazing. Also want to mention, um, as I have uh, before, that uh, you can subscribe to the show and it, it gets delivered right to your phone uh, without you even having to go out and search for it. Uh, and it doesn't cost you anything to subscribe. And if you do subscribe, rate it and review it. That's helpful to us. Also, anybody that's not listening to the show that doesn't you know, know how to do iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play, just tell them to go to thekevinsheehanshow.com and they can listen right there. Big Tony. Big Tony finally found the show. Oh, uh, I haven't talked to him, but he sent me a text saying, finally figured out how to listen to the podcast. I've been explaining it to him for months now, um, but it's really easy for those people that are intimidated uh, by a podcast or technology. Just tell them to go to thekevinsheehanshow.com, and it's really easy. Also, I got a note on Twitter from someone who said that they were a subscriber. I think they said on Stitcher. Um, it may have been another, uh, another platform, but if you are having problems getting it delivered, what I found a couple of months ago, the same thing happened to me. I just deleted it and resubscribed and then it was reset. You know, I don't, I can't explain the reason that it stopped delivering. I did check with our provider and they said that they aren't having any issues, um, with the podcast uh, getting out through all of the various podcast platforms. So I think sometimes it's a phone issue or uh, something's going on that can't be explained. But I can tell you this, it happened to me once about two months ago. I deleted my subscription to The Kevin Sheehan Show and then resubscribed. And then I was getting it um, continually. So uh, just uh, some advice there. couple of last thoughts uh, before we we head out for the day. Um P.J. Washington is still listed as questionable uh, for the Kentucky-Houston game uh, tonight. That's that's important. I, I, you know, there are a lot of coaches and a lot of programs with a lot of issues. You know, in this tournament, past and present. You know, obviously the LSU stuff. You know, Auburn and Bruce Pearl over the years, Carolina and the academic fraud. Um, you know, Houston with Kelvin Sampson and some of his issues in the past. You know, obviously, um, you know, we we've seen you know issues with. Uh, with, with some of these coaches and teams over the years. I, I, I am a Kelvin Sampson fan as a coach. Um, someone said to me the other day, are there any coaches you don't like? Yes, there are plenty. Um, but there just happen to be a lot of really good coaches in this tournament and really in the Sweet 16. I mean, I like everybody last night, I think, can coach. Dana Altman, Tony Bennett. Uh, you know, certainly Mark Few, Matt Painter, Rick Barnes, Chris Baird, and, and, and John Beeline. And you know what? Over the years, can you really, really debate the results Leonard Hamilton has gotten at Florida State? I know a lot of people will say, man, doesn't always do the right things at the right time, but that, that guy has done nothing but win in a lot of games at Florida State. Hasn't gotten to the Final Four. I think a lot of you thought that this was the year, um, but Gonzaga got the revenge. But, yeah, there are a lot of great coaches in this Sweet 16. You know, Izzo, um, Pearl. Pearl can coach no matter what you think of him. Buzz Williams, great coach. Kelvin Sampson, great coach. Yeah, they're just I, I don't have a problem really with anybody in this Sweet 16. Is there one coach you would say, I mean the LSU situation you're not sure about, but anyway, uh 
I, I so the PJ Washington thing we had mentioned earlier. You you thought he was back for sure. It looks like he's still questionable um, for tonight. That that's he, he's put out some videos like with him running and stuff. So I mean that that was a nip and tuck game with Wofford down yeah. the stretch oh, with, if, without him if there. PJ Washington isn't playing. That changes things considerably. Yeah. Um. The um. There was some other uh, sports news from yesterday. How about the Eagles trading for Jordan Howard? Uh, they didn't have to give up much either. Sixth round. Sixth round pick for In Jordan 2020, Howard. It can become a fifth rounder. Yeah. Uh, boy, the Eagles have really loaded up on some running backs over the years, right? Um, Jay Ajayi, he, I think he's a free agent and they haven't re-signed him. He is a free agent, right? Yeah, he's a, he's a free agent. Um, so they, you know, they're looking for a running back, and Jordan Howard's been a productive. You know, he's one of those fourth rounders that all of a sudden became really productive in Chicago. And you know, what? Oh no, you know, I, I think you were going about to mention what Chicago did in the offseason. Well, I, you know, the this seemed like something that should have happened a long time ago. It was very clear that Matt Nagy didn't really like Jordan Howard. He was someone who was one dimensional, and Nagy doesn't like one dimensional running backs. Matt at Nagy all. doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nagy doesn't like one dimensional running backs. Um, so it, you know, you saw it during the season as Cohen got more and more running, even when he wasn't. You know, he was getting the inside runs, which aren't his forte. So as soon as they signed uh, Mike Davis from Seattle, I thought that this was coming. I didn't know who exactly he would go to. Uh, there were a couple teams I thought would be interesting, but the Eagles make a lot of sense for him. Uh, the Bears in this offseason signed a guy that two years ago I said to Cooley, that's who I want the Redskins to have as a running back eventually when he is off his rookie deal, and that's Mike Davis, who's been in Seattle, been be- behind a bunch of guys, South Carolina, this guy is the guy they're going to feed the ball next year. Him and Tark Cohen. I mean, Tark Cohen's a dynamic, you know, uh, back, and and the same, and they use him a lot of ways in the a lot. They use him a lot in similar ways that Kansas City uses Tyree Kill more as a receiver. But I think Tark Cohen probably carries the ball more as a back. But Mike Davis is a legit, you know, twenty carry a guy game, and it's not going to surprise me if he ends up being a 1,200-yard back. And I know that that may not be necessarily what Chicago now will produce with their offense, but I, I love Mike Davis. And by the way, he can catch the ball. Yeah, that, that's the big thing is yeah. that unlike Howard, who couldn't catch the ball at all, this is a guy who can run between the tackles and catch the ball, which is exactly what Nagy's looking for. Right. Um, any Redskins news? There was really no Redskins news in it, the last it, day. It was quiet. Yeah, all quiet on, on that front. Um, I, I think really – we're getting we're a month away from the draft and we'll put a lot of people from the draft um on the show um you know a lot of people that cover the draft we'll put them on the show over the next month as we get up towards that but you know this time last year Sam Darnold was like the consensus guy to go number 1 overall you know a, a month before the draft not many had Baker Mayfield being the number 1 pick and that's the thing about all of the mock drafts is they're going to you know, we're going to look back on them a month from now and we're going to say, how did, you know, how did you miss such and such as a guy that was going in the top 10? You know, how did you guys miss that Noah Fant, the tight end from Iowa, was actually going to go before TJ Hawkinson? And he went number nine overall. Just an example. So the thing, four or five of those things are going to happen, including at the very top of the draft. I know most people, and I would put myself into this category, believe that Kyler Murray is going to be number one overall. But I don't think that I would bet a lot of money on it. I just think that there's a lot of time for big change. The one thing I will stick with as it relates to the quarterbacks, and it's just the way I felt watching him all season long. 
I think ultimately teams are going to pass on Dwayne Haskins and that he is going to fall and Locke is going to end up going in front of him and maybe even a guy like Daniel Jones could end up going in front of him. That could be one of the big surprises, you know, that Haskins is pretty much a consensus number two quarterback overall. And if you ask me a shocker, three quarterbacks go before Haskins. Murray, Locke, Jones. Jones is the one that everybody thinks is the most ready to step in and run an NFL offense, primarily because of the coaching at Duke from Cutcliffe. Uh, All right, that's it for the day. You got anything else? Not really, no. All right, I'll... I gave you the one smell test, Auburn plus five and a half. I'll put out a smell test pick or two for the the Elite Eight games tomorrow and then the Elite Eight games on Sunday. I'm going to the games tonight. Uh, if you're out there and you see me, say hello. Um, I always love uh, catching up with people who are listening to the podcast. And uh, all of you Twitter trolls, um, I'm never going to block you, so don't worry about it. I don't even know how to. I could figure it out quickly, but I don't care enough to do it. Have a great weekend. That's it.